This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to today's breakfast show, where I will be talking Socrates and whether or not we think he would have approved of Socratic questioning. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. A very good morning to you all from a very warm Gloucestershire today. We are at nine o'clock, it is breakfast time, and it is already 21 degrees, which I personally cannot believe. Um, So I hope that those of you who enjoy this weather are thriving. Um, I hope that those of you who, like me, are not as big fans of the heat are surviving this morning. And I will just say, only because I happened to have seen, as I was logging into Twitter to um, announce the fact that I've gone live, there are certain antidepressants, according to the BBC, that can make heat waves particularly challenging. So if you are a teacher, or if you are a listener who is on any kind of antidepressant medication, it might be a good idea for you just to double check whether your medication is one that... um, that can be affected by the heat or that can um, cause you to struggle during the heat. Because of course, all of these sorts of things, you know, any kind of of mental health issue already makes life difficult enough. And so if we're then adding in, um, if we're then adding in your symptoms being exasperated by the weather and something that is supposed to make you feel better, that is not going to be a good thing. Good morning, Tom. It is very, very pleasing to see you in the chat today. I am glad that you are here. Remember, listeners, if you would like to join in um, with the conversation this morning, because I am on my own, I do not have a guest. It is me all alone in the studio today. Um, And by studio, I'm in my bedroom. (laughs) So if you do want to join in, please remember to text us using the Podbean app. You can call in if you would like to. I would be happy to have you on to chat all during the, all using the Podbean app. Or you can tweet me, I am at Mr. D. Lester, all one word, and I will be more than happy to read out any messages that I receive over the next 90 minutes. Oh, what a week it has been on top of the heat. Um, we have had our trio now um, of celebrity deaths. I saw, again, as I logged into Twitter first thing this morning, I saw that Anne Hesch did pass away already from her injuries sustained during her um, her collision on uh, Thursday, I believe it was. We lost Olivia Newton-John earlier in the week. That was a bit of a shock, I think, because I it, it never occurred to me that Olivia Newton-John was actually as um, old as she was. <laughs> you know, I grew up watching her in Greece. Um, I'm a big musical theatre person. 
uh, in my pre-teaching life, I did musicals. And so I grew up watching Olivia Newton-John in Greece. And so it never occurred, never occurred to me that she actually wasn't 20 years old anymore. Uh, so that was a big shock. And then those of you who are who are fans of the Saturday Breakfast Show, who are friends of the Saturday Breakfast Show, will know that we are very much into children's literature here. And so we were gutted. We were gutted about the passing of Raymond Briggs um, midweek. It has been quite an intense week, I think, on the uh, on the celebrity passing factor. But hopefully they say that these things come in threes. So hopefully we are done now. But I did want to, before I get into the kind of the meat and potatoes of today's show, I did want to take a minute to remember Raymond Briggs. Um, I think it would be remiss of me again, as I said, because we are such big um, advocates of children's literature um, on the Saturday Breakfast Show. It would be remiss of me if I didn't. And um, it is relevant, not just in terms of the children's literature world, but in terms of, of my practice as a teacher. Um, I never met Raymond Briggs, a far too famous a person uh, for me to have met. I do have an autograph, though. Uh, it's kept him on my Christmas decorations because I wrote to him one year. I don't know why. I'm not, I promise, I'm not the type of person who, who writes regularly to celebrities. Um, I don't even like to tweet at them. I know some people do, and some people like to use Twitter um, to keep in touch with or, or to touch base with people that they admire. Um, I think that's really brave, personally. I, I, I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm, I was going to say I'm too shy, but clearly I'm not because I'm sitting here on the radio talking to you all. Um, I just think that these people probably don't want to be disturbed by me. Um, so yeah, I don't even tweet at celebrities, but a few years ago, I can't remember what prompted it, but I did write to Raymond Briggs. Um, and I enclosed a, a self-addressed envelope and a snowman Christmas card, um, a charity Christmas card with a, an illustration from the snowman and the snow dog on the front. Um, just on the off chance, and I said in my letter, you know, if um, if if you have the time, um, just to to sign this card and send it back to me, I would appreciate it. Um, and he did, he did very kindly. So that now is is a prized possession of mine, and I'm glad that I did it uh, because I, I I I went through a similar experience when the four actresses from the Golden Girls passed away. Um, massive Golden Girls fan as well. I, I don't pretend that I'm cool. It's fine. It's fine. I know I'm not. <laughs> and and I remember, because those were kind of the, the first celebrity deaths that, that kind of impacted me personally. You know, they were the first people that I was, that I was fans of. And when, you know, first it was Estelle Getty, then it was um, Rue McClanahan. And when they passed away, um, I, I regretted the fact that I never got to tell them how important the show was to me. And, you know, they didn't need me telling them that. They don't know who I am. And they will have probably millions, I'm sure that's not an exaggeration, of adoring fans who have said the same thing to them over their careers. So, it, you know, it didn't matter to them that they never heard from me. But I did regret that I never, um, that I never wrote to them, that I never told them. Uh, how important their work was. So I did then write to Betty White. Um, this, again, this was years years and years ago now. Um, and when Betty passed at the beginning of the year, I was very glad that I'd written to her because I was like, well, at least I was able to tell, to tell one of the four how important it was. And I felt the same about Raymond because 
one of my overarching memories of infant school. So separate infant and junior schools don't seem to be um, in vogue in England anymore. But where I am, I went to infant school between the ages of four and six. Then we graduated up to what we called big school, but was officially the junior school from ages seven to 11. And then I went off to secondary school. So when I was in infant school, when I was, um, I must have been about five, we went into assembly. We had assembly every single day. And so we went in um, and from the beginning of assembly, it was very, very strange because the head teacher was sitting with us and she never did that. The head teacher always led the assembly. But as soon as we walked in, you know, we filed in in our little lines with our teacher and she was sitting where we sat. And, you know, that was very exciting. That was very different for a five year old. That's about as exciting as life gets when when an adult sits where you sit. Um, and so she kind of she beckoned us all over to her. And instead of making us sit in our rows, because we used to have to sit in our year groups, um, reception, the four-year-olds were right at the front, then behind them were the year ones. Um, so they were five, um, yeah, five, six, and then the year twos, who was six, seven. Um, and she didn't have us sit in our rows. We kind of all just sat together around in like this huddle of 120 kids and the the head teacher and then one of the other teachers wheeled the tv in now a lot of you will know how exciting that was um i remember when my school got a tv uh one tv in the whole school it was in the library and i think it was each class had a scheduled time slot where they could go in and use it and that was very very exciting to be able to watch tv in school um, and so when the TV was wheeled out of the library and into the assembly hall, that was the most exciting thing ever for us. We still didn't know what was going on, um, but the deputy head then put in a video and we all sat in for our assembly that morning. It must have been, must have been the middle of December, just before we broke up for, for the Christmas holidays. We watched The Snowman. Um, I must have seen The Snowman already, because this would have been about 1992. Uh, and I must have seen that show already. There's no way that I would not have seen it. But it's the first time that I remember seeing it. And I remember sitting with all of my school friends um, and, and, you know, kids that I didn't know because they were older than me, younger than me, with the head teacher kind of in the huddle. And we all just sat and we watched the programme together. And, and that was it. That was our entire assembly, was the 20, 25-minute showing of the snowman and i don't know if it's still spoilers if a show is 30 years old <laughs> but um, i am about to spoil the ending now so for those of you who have not seen it and do not want to be spoiled maybe just mute me for, for 30 seconds while i remind everybody else that at the end of the show the snowman melts as 37 year old darren I still find that quite a traumatic experience, watching him melt at the end. It's very, very sad. For a five-year-old Darren, it was horrendous. It was possibly the worst thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I remember crying. I cried quite easily as a, as a kid. I used to cry on the last day of school um, when I realised that I would have to kind of move up into the next year and I wouldn't have my same teacher anymore. So, you know, that's not unusual. But... Um... <laughs> 
but I cried. And I remember looking around and, and I think the whole hall was crying, including the head teacher. And, and that image has stuck with me because for, for that minute or two at the end of the show where we kind of all calmed down before we went back to lessons, she was one of us. You know, quite often as, as teachers, we have that, that dichotomy and the kids will do it quite a lot. You know, they will always say, in classes that I say, you know, are you giving us homework? Are we having a test today? So the kids will lump themselves together as, as a group. And then you as the teacher are kind of separate from that group. And, you know, that's, that's right, that's healthy, I think. There should be those boundaries because we are not one of the kids. But I remember that moment so vividly, I think, because there wasn't that boundary then. We were all together having experienced this story and, you know, having had a, a nice time in assembly, a different time in assembly, and all reacting to, to that ending. And that has really stuck with me. You know, 32 years later, that has really stuck with me. And it's those kinds of moments that I want in my practice to try and create, even with my older kids, even with, you know, my sixth formers, my 18 year olds, I want to give them that, those, those experiences of, I suppose, belonging, but more importantly, those experiences of joy and those experiences that they may not have anywhere else. And I do think that's quite hard these days. I do think that's really hard these days because I can guarantee that um, of the 120 odd kids who were sitting in that assembly hall that morning, there would have been a few who had never seen the snowman before. Like I said, I must have done, but I don't remember it. That's the first time I remember watching it. And, you know, that was quite easy because we had all of four TV channels to choose from. And so showing us anything, uh, you know, if you were to show anything in a school, even stuff that wasn't aimed for schools, you had a good chance of, of a big chunk of people not having seen it before. But these days where our students, our pupils have a lot of autonomy over the media that they consume, most of them have their own devices, um, you know, a phone, a, a tablet, whatever it might be. Those who don't have their own because they're too young have access to um, parents or the siblings. And so they will watch all sorts of things. And I think it is hard now to create those experiences um, for the kids. And, and quite often when we try to, it can come across as being quite cheesy. Um, I know times where I've walked out of a lesson and I've been gutted because I thought it was going to be really good. And I thought I was going to create one of those positive, memorable experiences for them. Um, but I could see as the activity was going on that they were just bored um, because it didn't capture them like I thought it was going to. So that, that kind of is something that I strive for. And I think the reason that I strive for that is because of that, that experience that I had um, in that assembly hall when I was five years old, um, you know, those moments that my teachers made for me. And so I would like to thank Raymond Briggs for that. It's a bit late. I might have mentioned it in my letter. I, I, I honestly don't remember. Um, but I want to thank him for for creating the snowman, for creating those characters that have eventually gone on to inform my own teaching practice. Um, and everything that I do, 
um, every decision that I make about a lesson is informed by, could this create one of those memories? Could this be the thing that not only gets the information, the content that I'm trying to, to teach to stick, but that they will remember? Even if they don't remember me, I don't care if they don't remember me, that's fine. But if they remember my lesson, if they remember that feeling that I've created, um, then that would be amazing. So thank you. Thank you, Raymond Briggs, for for all of that. And and I will strive um, as my as my teaching career continues to to create those memories for my students. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm starting a series on home connection speed and getting the best performance. Everybody wants the best performance for their devices at home, with more and more things needing the internet or a home network connection to provide interactivity and additional functionality, ensuring you can get a good connection is essential. Most people use Wi-Fi as their home setup, so I'll start with this and also try and explain basically how a home network works. First, let's understand what devices are doing when you add them to your Wi-Fi network. Wireless fidelity, or Wi-Fi as it's commonly known, is a high-frequency signal that's being invisibly transmitted around your home. If you have access to the signal, you can send and receive data. This is what your phone, laptop, tablets, internet-enabled TV, wireless alarms, even some door locks and fridges are connecting through to communicate and most of the time use the internet to add functionality to your ever-growing smart home. The more devices you have, the more demand is placed on your network to transmit data. Comparing your home network to the network of corridors in your school and throwing in some geeky tech words, bandwidth is the size of the corridor and dictates how much traffic or people that can be handled. Classrooms are the devices and the staff and pupils are the data that the devices need. Using the school as a physical example of a network, during lesson time when everybody's in place, it's easy to travel around the network of corridors and people or data can travel at normal walking speed or faster if you're feeling the need to. On lesson change or at break time, lots of people need to be somewhere else. Pupils need to walk slower, follow rules such as walking on a certain side or in a certain direction, doorways create queues and the journey from A to B during this time can take considerably longer. This is due to the physical constraints of the corridor. It cannot get any bigger, so people need to move slower. Comparing this to your home network, bandwidth is the amount of data that can be sent at a given time. It's measured in bits per second, a bit being a one or a zero. That's binary, the computer's language. So a one megabit bandwidth means one million ones and zeros can be transmitted in a second. If you decide to look up your Wi-Fi speed, you'll find some really interesting facts, but also risk being sent to sleep. A modern Wi-Fi network on paper is capable of transmitting 1,300 megabits per second. That's 1,300,000,000 ones and zeros every second. 
Oh wow. There are, however, loads of factors to consider, the main one being the number of devices sharing the bandwidth at a given time. Over this series, I'll be looking at what you can do to help you get the best performance from your home network. For now, I hope you're beginning to understand what's happening on your home network and why at busy times it can slow down. Today's takeaway tip is if you need good performance, then make sure other devices are not reducing the bandwidth that you are receiving. If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. Why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech i'm steve woods and that was two minute tech two minute tech with steve woods your tech briefing on teachers talk radio if you're listening to this then we know we share one thing in common a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves that's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care we need people like you to help us achieve even more with us You'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. Just listening to um to steve's two minute tech there made me think about how often we kind of don't realize how many of our devices are actually online before i came um before i went live this morning i decided to just have a quick look around the room that i'm in and switch off anything that is connected to the internet just to make sure that i've got enough bandwidth um to to broadcast to you all today and i ended up having two um turn off the box that is connected to my tv the streaming box because that streams over the internet um i have switched off my phone i have switched off uh, a tablet um, i've got my computer still switched on um so that i can see all of your amazing tweets at me so that we can have a conversation today so that's still there and is you know sucking up my juice um i've got a second tablet on that i'm broadcasting um, from today and I unplugged my desktop computer just in case and that's that's a whole lot in just a small room that's a whole lot of stuff that takes up bandwidth um, you know I am not a technophobe at all um, I love technology the internet is in fact my life <laughs> oh, thank you Tom I am glad I am glad that, uh, that the sound is coming across well today um, but yeah, I think sometimes it is good for us just to stop and think about exactly how connected we are and to try and take some time every so often to, to disconnect and kind of remember what it is to to not be on call all the time, to not check your emails at, at 9pm, you know, all of that sort of thing. Anyway, we are now 23 minutes into our show and I have not actually addressed the reason that we are here today. Um, I want to talk about Socratic questioning and I want to think about whether Socrates himself would have approved of what we call Socratic questioning. So again, if you are listening in live and you would like to join in, if this is something that you are interested in, if this is something you have opinions on, then please do. You can text in and you can call in using the Podbean app. If that's how you are listening to me, you can tweet at me. I'm at Mr. D Lester, L-E-S-T-E-R, all one word. I would love to hear your, your thoughts today. 
Socratic questioning, I think, is one of those techniques that at varying points in our careers, we will have all gone, yes, of course I do that. Obviously, I use Socratic questioning. Um, because it's something that we just kind of are taught is good practice. Then it goes out of fashion for a little while, because questioning is something that as teachers, we, we reflect on a lot. We kind of come back to a lot to figure out whether we're getting it right. Um, like all of our practice, to be fair, teachers are, are, are very reflective in their practice in general. But I think questioning is the thing that tends to get the most attention. And we kind of cycle through what is what is trendy and what's not. And Socratic questioning goes in and out of fashion, at least in England. Um, I know in the US it has a much more um, solid reputation, particularly in university settings. And I'll be referencing some some articles from from university researchers as we go through this morning. Uh, but in certainly in primary and secondary education in England, I can't even speak for the whole of the UK um, because I, I have taught exclusively in England. Um, it, it goes in and out of fashion, depending on, on what we want. And let's be honest, what we think inspectors are looking for, because that does quite often drive a lot of our practice, um, whether it should or not, is a whole other um, a whole other debate. But it comes in, it goes out, and I was thinking earlier in the week when I was planning the show, does it actually resemble what Socrates was doing? Because we call it Socratic questioning, it's explicitly named after him, but is it actually his teaching technique? And kind of that's what I've done a, a a medium depth dive into today. And that's kind of what I'm gonna, gonna pitch to you today because I'm gonna say that actually no, what we call Socratic questioning is not really what Socrates did. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I am just saying that we are attributing something to this man. We're putting his name on something that isn't quite the same thing that he was doing. So let's start. I'm actually going to um, base today's conversation around a whole bunch of questions to myself. I said that I don't have a guest, but maybe I'm just interviewing myself today. <laughs> um, because I thought questions in a, in a show about questioning, particularly about Socratic questioning, was the best way to do it. So the first question that I'm going to pose to myself is what do we as teachers mean by Socratic questioning? Or what do I as a teacher understand by Socratic questioning? Because the other thing that I found when I just typed into Google, um, other search engines are available, um, at the beginning of the week, what is Socratic questioning? Whilst the, um, the, 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 the breadth of the definition was broadly the same, I noticed that each source had a very slightly different depth of definition. And so everybody seems to have something a bit different to say about what Socratic questioning is. And I was taken by Izzet Hickman's 2014 article in the TES magazine, um, which I have tweeted a link to already. Um, if you want to read the article, please never ever just take somebody else's literature review as, as green. Always go back and read the literature for yourself uh, when you are making practice decisions. Because again, how I interpret something 
will be different to how you interpret something and it will inform our practices differently. And again, I'm just summarizing for you what somebody else has said. So you are now hearing this third hand. So if you are able, if you have the time, always do go back and, and read the studies, look at the articles for yourself instead of just relying on, on what you are told. Um, because that way you can really engage with it and you can you can truly make some informed practice decisions. But anyway, is it Hickman whose whose article I do rate um, in terms of, of talking about Socratic questioning? Defined it as um, involving students being presented with minimal information and being required to develop ideas and arguments, first by making links to prior learning and then through questions generated by the class. These discussions force students to think critically in order to reach conclusions rather than being given answers or led towards or led towards them, led towards the answers by the teacher. And for me, that's a very succinct definition of what Socratic questioning is. It's this idea that you will have a question, that you as the teacher will come up with a lead question in your lesson. And then through that question, you will encourage your students to make links, you will encourage your students to analyse, you will encourage your students to evaluate, you will get all of your Bloom's taxonomy words in, um, just by constantly asking questions. And I remember being in school and this was a, a, a big part of my education. You know, my lessons when I was at school always started with a key question. And it didn't matter what subject I was in, there was a key question. That must have been a kind of teaching fad when I was at school. It's quite funny as a teacher to look back on your own schooling and figure out the fads that were that were in fashion at that time. Um, and so I remember, you know, we had to copy down the key question. I remember transitioning from titles to key questions and, and we copied that down. And since I've been a teacher uh, and since I started training, so um, I've got a B.Ed. So I did three years of training. So I've been in the classroom for 18 years. Um, the, the idea of a key question in most subjects has been superseded by writing down a learning objective. So I, as a languages teacher, have never had my students write down a key question. It's always been writing down a, a Lernziel in German, a Boot in French, um, a, a lesson objective. When I've taught RS, I have had key questions. Um, you know, all through from even from primary RS, when I used to teach that all the way through A-level, lessons have been based around these key questions. And when I kind of reflected on that, when I thought on that, I, I was thinking about the difference between teaching language and teaching religious studies. And the core difference, I think, is that religious studies is one of those topics um, a bit like classics as opposed to Latin or Greek or Hebrew, where there are not necessarily correct answers. As long as you can justify yourself, as long as you can make the connections and explain why you think something um, in the way that you think it, then you're going to be okay. Now, obviously, there are factually correct answers. You know, if you were to say that the holy book for Hindus is the Bible, you would be wrong. 
But quite often the things that we think about in IRS, and even to be honest, the things that we think about in classics are more, um, more philosophical, are more to do with justification and opinion and convincing somebody, I suppose, than they are to do with getting a factually correct answer. If I were to write a key question, let's say a French lesson, if I were to write a key question on the board, how do we form the present tense in French? And these kids had never seen the present tense in French before. And I had given them nothing else other than my key question. I can stand there and ask that question for a 50 minute period and they wouldn't learn it. Because unless they've got something there to start with, unless they know at least that to, to change a French infinitive into a conjugated verb, you need to take some letters off of the end. They're not going to be able to, to come up with, with anything meaningful. And we would just waste a lot of time going through lots of incorrect answers. And that, I think, is where what we consider to be Socratic questioning, what we as, as teachers now use Socratic questioning for, um, can fall down because unless we are giving the students adequate preparation to begin with, the questioning itself can't teach anything. The question itself can't necessarily teach content, but it can help to um, solidify understanding of that content. It can help us to get to the nitty gritty. So I think, and obviously I'm starting the show coming from a, a, a biased place, I suppose, um, from the research that I have done. I'm coming to the show going, you, in my opinion, you cannot do a whole lesson that is just Socratic questioning in the way that we think you might be able to, because according to what we think, that's what Socrates did. Um, I think that it is something, though, that we could use as, a, as an activity, almost, to help our students get to grips with content that we've already either taught them or at least to which they've already been exposed. My next question is, who actually was Socrates? Because again, we've, we've named this technique after this man. We all think we know that this man taught using Socratic questioning. That's why this technique exists. But who actually was he? And funnily enough, that question cannot be answered. <laughs> um, this is what in classics we call the Socratic problem. Because the honest, albeit simplified answer is, we don't know who Socrates was. Now, I know I've got, uh, I've got Tom listening in today, and Tom is a history teacher. Um, and so he, as a, as a history teacher, will be better, um, better positioned to, to, to kind of explain this. And, and please, Tom, do correct me if I'm wrong, um, because I'm just a classic, just, I'm a classics teacher. Um, and so my, my training is in analyzing classical sources, and I probably don't have the same range of source training that you do. Um, but the sources that we have to teach us about Socrates are, in my opinion, not particularly reliable. We only have three main primary sources 
um, about his life. And even those, the timing is a bit iffy now, because in classics we cover like thousands of years, um, our idea of a primary source um, can have a bit of leeway in terms of, in terms of the ages of everything. But we have three contemporary sources, we'll call them, that discuss Socrates. Um, but most of the people who knew and wrote about him at that time, so these three people, thank you, Tom, I'm glad. I'm glad to get your approval on that. Um, those who, who wrote about him, they, they did so at a time when they didn't, that there was no real interest in historical accuracy that was not so important and historians could have taken and did take a lot of artistic license um <laughs> that's all right that's right thomas said that he's not an expert but that's okay do you know what i appreciate that i like that it's very refreshing um when as teachers we um we say that we are not experts because we're not experts in everything we're really really not and we should be open to learning from each other um, so yeah, the, the, the people who wrote about him, the sources that we have for Socrates um, are, are plays. We have playwrights. And the ancients had this, what I think is actually quite cool tradition, of fictionalising their celebrities. The problem with that is that taking what they say for granted as being absolute truth in the same way that we might take a, a modern biography as being truth, is akin to watching an episode of Horrible Histories. For those of you not in the UK, Horrible Histories is a, a children's TV show um, about history, um, which presents the subject matter in a very entertaining way. So it's lots of singing, lots of dancing. Um, so it's, it's akin to watching an episode of Horrible Histories on, let's say, the Tudors, and watching Queen Elizabeth I perform a rap about her family in the grounds of a castle, and then saying with absolute certainty, yes, Queen Elizabeth I spent her Saturday afternoons rapping. Because what you're doing is taking a fictionalised version of a historical person and using that fiction um, to make judgments on their life. I mean, yeah, yeah, Tom, Tom just said she might have. She might. She might. I can see the Virgin Queen standing there. You know, she'd have been a big fan of, again, this is where I admit that I'm not cool and the only rapper that comes to mind is Eminem from about 20 years ago. <laughs> but she could have been a fan. She could have. We don't know. We don't know. I would love to read that paper. I would love to read that book, actually. I've been trying to read more historical fiction. Um, so that I, I branch out of, of magical realism and, and fantasy. And I would absolutely read The Raps of Queen Elizabeth I. So if any of my writer friends are listening and kind of want to get on that, you've got a built-in audience already um, of me. Um, but there is always this question over the extent to which we can trust anything. I suppose, you know, when we're looking at history, the extent to which we can trust about anybody, regardless of the time period, because everything... Uh, everything comes with bias, everything comes with a lens through which it is interrogated. <laughs> Tim has just texted in to say some Tudors certainly get a bad rap, and that is 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 not a pun that I can cope with at 20 to 10 on a Saturday morning. I'm going to need another coffee before I laugh at that one, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so we've got these plays, 
we've got these playwrights writing about Socrates. Um, and I've read them. Um, I studied them at university when I did, I did my classics degree. And the, the problem that we have with them, the second problem that we have, not only are they fictional, but possibly because they are fictional, they all give us very wildly, um, very wild variations on his beliefs and his methods. The, the primary sources that we have, the plays that we have, do not actually agree on how Socrates acted, on what Socrates believed, and of what Socrates did with his disciples to encourage their learning. So again, we're taking what we think is true based on a synthesis of this information. We are putting his name on it. Um, and we are then saying, yes, clearly this is what he did. And we're falling into the trap that the Romans fell into of saying that because the Greeks did it, it was good. Um, I love the fact that one of the Roman, one of the Latin words for awesome, fantastic, great, um, is uh, both ancient and also Greek. Because for the Romans, anything that was Greek was brilliant. Um, and so again, if you think about it, if you think about the, the colonization, the colonialism that occurred under the Romans, it's no surprise that we've got these, these vestiges of Greek education still in our systems. Um, because, you know, the Greeks came along thinking that, uh, the Romans came along, I'm sorry, thinking that everything the Greeks did was amazing. And they left us with that when they, when they went away. So the, the first play that we're going to talk about, uh, or the first play that I'm just going to run through very quickly was Clouds. And Clouds was written by um, Aristophanes. And he is the only one of our three playwrights who would have known Socrates as a young-ish man. So already we've now gone from three people telling us about Socrates down to only one who knew him at his prime, in inverted commas. Um, the reason that we know that, the reason that we can place that, is that Clouds was actually written within about a year of Socrates fighting as a hoplite at the Battle of Delium. Um, and I remember being quite surprised at that. When I learned that, I remember being surprised that Socrates was a soldier. Because even though I knew, um, like on a, you know, on an intellectual level, I knew that Greek men went to war. I guess I kind of inadvertently assumed that philosophers got a bit of a pass. Um, because I just couldn't imagine Socrates going to war. Uh, but he did. He did indeed. And in Clouds, um, he, he heads up a, what is essentially a think tank in which his group of young men study, uh, study nature and they study rhetoric and they possibly for comedic effect, they abandon all sense of what it was to be a proper Athenian. Um, the, the Socrates character pokes fun at the gods. We've got a certain amount of, of blasphemy going on in this play, which itself is mimicked by one of his disciples a bit later on in the play. Um, and this, this fictional Socrates starts talking about how all of the natural phenomena that are um, ascribed to the deities 
are actually just nature doing its thing. So we've got quite a lot of what would have been considered blasphemy going on in this play um, while Socrates was teaching. And again, we don't know if this is what he thought. His writings, as far as I'm aware, never gave an opinion on the gods. Aristophanes probably didn't study under Socrates. And so it's difficult for us to, to see whether we should take this as, as read, whether we should take this as truth. Uh, we've also then got two other playwrights, as I've mentioned, um, that wrote about him, Xenophon and Plato. Um, they would have been 40, 45, 50 years younger than, than Socrates himself. And so if they encountered him, we believe that Plato was one of his disciples, um, but if they encountered him, it would have been during his later years. And so the question then becomes, well, could Socrates have changed um, between the time of clouds, if we take clouds as being true, you know, could he have changed from being this kind of very blasphemous pro-nature person to somebody who was a bit more laid back, um, who was a bit more intellectually curious, I suppose? The answer to that is possibly, because in the years between Clouds being published and Socrates being put on trial at the end of his life, um, the Greek states were pretty much perpetually at war. Um, massive upheaval in Greek society, massive changes amongst the Greek people. And that's bound to have left its mark on a young man who, or on a man who spent his prime years going through these things. And so these, these, these ideas of his that had been presented as comedy when he was a young man, you know, this idea that, of course, it's not the gods responsible for thunder and lightning, it's the clouds doing their thing. You know, that, that, could, be, that could have been portrayed in a comic way that we as teachers are now taking as truth. Um, and it might be that he then came to believe these things towards the end of his life. Um, the fact is, we don't know. <laughs> What's interesting, though, is that Aristophanes' um, Aristophanes's depiction of, of Socrates clearly had a big cultural impact during Greek times, because Plato, in his, uh, his work Apology, has Socrates say at his trial that most of his jurors have grown up believing lies attributed to him in Aristophanes' play. So what we've now got are these two primary sources where the later source contradicts the earlier source and the later source outrightly says Aristophanes' play was wrong. These are lies that were put in my mouth. And Aristophanes does a lot of, of kind of what I consider to be good humoured, but of course I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put words in their mouths. I don't want to upset Socrates anymore. Um, but, you know, he Socrates appears again in Aristophanes' plays Birds and in Frogs. Um, 
and 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 he he complains about the the youth he does a, a good old man you know kids these days they they don't listen and in fact this is you see this go around quite often as a meme and it's attributed to socrates um, but in fact it comes from aristophanes from the play so we don't know we don't know whether socrates actually used socratic questioning i am going to go out on the limb though and say that he probably did and my reason for that is my justification for that is socrates's actual interest socrates wasn't a teacher like we are um, Socrates was actually more concerned with gaining knowledge than transmitting it. And there is a there's a, an argument that I personally believe that the Socratic questioning that we attribute to him wasn't actually purely focused on getting his disciples to make connections, but that he was actually focused on learning from them. That he was interested in finding out what these people had to say and building that into his own knowledge base, his own beliefs, his own practices. Now, I don't know, maybe I like that because it's kind of a romantic view of, of education. This idea that we can learn from our kids as much as they can learn from us. You know, that's a, that, that's a, a movie. That's, um, that's Dead Poet Society. That's pr probably not, uh, not likely, not accurate, but it's a nice idea. It's a nice idea. And I think there are ways to which we can do that. There are ways to which we can use Socratic questioning to probe our students' knowledge, not necessarily to learn knowledge from them, but to learn their misunderstandings so that we then can pivot our teaching and come back to what we think they need to learn. Um, but again, that's not about co-constructing knowledge. That's not um, social constructivism, um, as I was taught at university. That is just us doing a formative assessment. <laughs> so, yeah, whether or not Socrates um, used Socratic questioning as we consider it is, is debatable. And it's something we will never get an answer to. You know, I'm sure that there will be classicists aplenty listening to this and disagreeing with what I've said, because that's, as I said, uh, as Tim and I said a couple of weeks ago um, in my interview with, with him, if you've not heard my interview with Tim Hughes, you can go back and listen. We talk about children's literature. Um, but, you know, we talked about how different people can read the same thing and read completely different things into it based on their own experiences. And I think that can only be a good thing. Right, how does Socratic questioning as we use it then work? I found a quite a nice list by Paul and Elder from 1997, um, who listened the skills that we as the Socratic questioner should be using. And they said a Socratic questioner should keep discussion focused because, of course, if you're just asking questions, it's very easy to go off on a tangent. I go off on tangents all the time. Um, my teaching is quite often full of tangents, although I am able to keep my tangents on message. I make sure that my kids do at least learn something from my tangents. 
um, keep the discussion intellectually responsible. Because again, it is our responsibility as the teacher to make sure that our students are progressing. You know, the big thing um, in inspections at the moment is being able to demonstrate progress within a lesson. Have the students moved on from when you did your starter to when you're doing your plenary or however you are structuring your lesson. And, and for me, that's the intellectual responsibility is making sure that we're not just sitting around the table having a nice chat, but that we are in fact achieving my learning outcome. To stimulate the discussion with probing questions. So already, you know, there are five things on this list and the probing questions doesn't occur until halfway. So Socratic questioning isn't just about asking questions. Which, if you are Socrates trying to expand your own knowledge, absolutely, because you are learning from your disciples. But if you're the teacher trying to get your students to learn something, like I said at the top of the show, or when we started this segment, you can't just keep asking questions because connections are not enough. They need things to build these connections from. Periodically summarise what has and what has not been dealt with and or resolved. And I suppose, again, this is about making sure that you don't stay on your tangent. And it's also about directing the lesson in the way that you want it to go. It's one of the dangers, I think, of running a purely student-centred classroom, is that we as teachers know the curriculum that we need to cover. And again, like it or not, we do need to cover a curriculum, particularly those of us that teach in England and Wales, um, again, that's the system that I know best, where we have a very exam-heavy, exam-focused curriculum, and we are under pressure to make sure that we cover a lot of content. We need to make sure that the discussion that the students are having, as lovely as it might be, is still actually covering the content that we need to cover. Because otherwise, if they were to walk into their exam and there are questions on things that we haven't content uh, that we haven't talked because we've just been having a lovely time having a chat and I've been asking questions, they're going to come out of that exam not having been properly prepared. And so not having been able to do the best that they could have done because of the way I chose to run the classroom. Now, whether or not an exam-focused system is the best way to run an education system is, again, a whole other debate, a whole other show. That's just the system that I work in, so those are the, the constraints that I have. So I need, in my classroom, if I'm running a Socratic classroom, to make sure that I am occasionally dropping in a question that might not actually be relevant to the discussion that we're having, but that is relevant to the theme, that is relevant to the content, because I need to make sure that we are moving on and draw as many students as possible into the discussion. And that's something that I'm going to come back to because that's a big thing. And I think in all the CPD that all of us do, certainly in the CPD that I've done about questioning over the past couple of years, this idea of making sure that we are including all of our students has been a big one. Though I do question whether it's right for us to force students to be included. And we'll talk a little bit about, or I'll talk a little bit more about that um, later on. Um, again, this is where I am going to remind you that if you want to join in the conversation, so you're not just listening to my monologue, um, you can please do text in or call in using the Podbean app. And you can tweet me. I do have my Twitter open. So you can tweet anything um, at, you can do anything at, at Mr. D. Lester. Um, those of you who are listening to the playback, if 
you would like to join the conversation despite the fact that we're not live anymore you absolutely can um very easy to do that you can just tweet at me and i will make sure that i reply we can keep this discussion going all week the teachers talk radio account itself has just asked a very interesting question uh my school does things a certain way for ofsted or another inspection body that links quite nicely to what I was just talking about, about making sure that we are covering everything that we in inverted commas need to cover. Um, if you don't follow Teachers Talk Radio, please do. That's at TT Radio 2022. Um, and please do vote, vote in that poll because I'd be interested to see generally um, what the thoughts are of schools around the country, around the world, even. So that's how Paul and Elder say a teacher should run a Socratic classroom. And is it Hickman in that article that I referenced at the top of the show, um, when they returned to teaching, built their whole classroom around um, Socratic questioning, and actually it has listed a very good skeleton of if you wanted to do that, and you if you wanted to do a lesson that was purely Socratic, uh, this is a, a good foundation for you to build on. So Hickman said, start with a five minute question exploring the main theme of the lesson. For example, and Hickman is a business and economics teacher. Uh, for example, can you think of how office work may have changed over the past 20 years? So you're starting with the key question. Again, a bit like I said at the top of the, at the, top of the show, something that has kind of fallen out of fashion in many subjects, particularly in England right now, because of our emphasis on having kids have a lesson objective and what you don't want to do let's be honest it already takes them five ten minutes to get settled and then write the date and the lesson objective from the board into their books if you are the type of teacher who has some copy down the lesson objective um to then add copying down a question on top of that that's another five minutes um <laughs> so start with a five minute question um although students won't have studied the topic before they can draw on their prior knowledge to identify potential answers. So you are starting your lesson with something brand new, but something that hopefully they will be able to reach back into their prior learning and draw from. Encourage them to express their ideas first in pairs, then as a class, and not to worry about whether they are right or wrong, because the process is more important than the answer. Probe students' understanding with further queries, I always try to answer a student's question with another question as it is their ideas and answers, as it is their ideas and answers that are important and not mine. So again, here we are mainly focusing on technique. We're focusing on, on getting our students to make these connections to justify their viewpoints. I cannot say that this is a bad thing. Um, in MFL at A-level, students need to write essays. Um, I teach at Excel A-level, so our essays are on a book that we've studied and a film that we've studied. Um, we do have the option to do two books, but I like to do a book and a film personally. And one thing that I find every year is that, that my year 12s particularly do struggle with analysing books and films. They struggle with going into depth with these things. And even one of the groups that I teach is um, a group of native speakers. I prepare them for Chinese in their own language. 
Um, and, and they struggle even to make the cultural links with what they're seeing on the screen to what the question might be. And so it's not natural to link things together. It's not natural to be able to write an analytical essay about a film that you've watched, a book that you've read, a source that you've examined. And these things do need to be taught. Um, so, you know, I am I'm completely on board with using Socratic questioning as a way of getting them to deepen their thought process so that we're not just having surface level, um, oh, you know, this character in the film hit somebody so he's a bad person. But we are beginning to get them to develop that that secondary layer of understanding. You know, that all oh, violence is his go-to method because of the toxic environment in which he grew up. Again, that's not natural for our students. And so that is something that we need to teach them. Uh, next, so once you've had those five minutes, uh, move on to look at more analytical tasks. For example, analyze the impact of these changes on organizations. So we're not questioning anymore. We, we've now not asked our students a question. We have given them something to do. We've given them a task. And this is where it stops being what I would have considered to be a Socratic questioning lesson because we've stopped asking questions. Again, if Socrates had his disciples with him and he was trying to learn from them, he would have been asking lots of questions. And it's possible that his whole lesson would have just been asking questions. And so in my head, and maybe I just take the term too literally, but in my head, when I hear Socratic questioning, I hear an hour, 45 minutes, whatever it might be, of me as the teacher just asking lots of questions. Um, and so actually, I, I was quite interested and I was quite relieved almost, I think, when I read this part of it, Is It Hickman's article, um, because suddenly the students are doing something. And, you know, it's that teachery thing of, am I getting my kids to do enough? And overcoming that mental barrier we have as teachers, that in order to be doing something, in inverted commas, the kids need to be writing something. Because, you know, if you were to have a lesson that was 45 minutes of just talking, and again, I'm a language teacher, so I do actually do this, you then don't have anything in their book. And so can you prove, can you justify what you have done in that lesson? Again, whether we should have to do that is a completely different conversation, but that is a danger that we have. You know, if there's no evidence of work in a book, are we as the teacher going to be uh, critiqued, criticised for that? Um, when they have been given this task to do this, analyse the impact of these changes on organisations, it says students should work individually in pairs or in small groups, often with the aid of stimulus material in the form of an article or video clip to provide context without giving answers. So I suppose this is where the idea of Socratic teaching comes into play, that the teacher doesn't give the answer. And that's something that, again, in, in England especially, we talk about a lot, do we spoon feed our students too much? Are we too quick to give them the answers? Maybe because we've got a lot of content to, to, to get through. I know I certainly have done it. Uh, I wish I could say it was just in my early years of teaching, 
Uh, but even in this last school year, I know that I've moved on too quickly in activity and I've given my students an answer because I've needed to get through my content. Um, and so it's possible that they didn't actually learn what I needed them to learn from that one activity because I just supplied them with what they needed. Once that is done, you have another class feedback session. Um, and it says the final stage of the lesson, lesson should develop students' evaluative skills by applying their learning to a case study. For example, evaluate how effectively company X uses flexible working practices to increase staff motivation. So again, this isn't a question. You could phrase it as a question, I suppose. How effectively did company X use flexible working practices to increase staff motivation? Um, but in this example, it isn't. And it says here students need to draw connections between what they have learned in the lesson and prior knowledge to make a balanced critique and form judgments. So none of the actual learning here has come from the teacher supplying information directly. The teacher has asked questions to get the students to make connections and the teacher has supplied resources, videos and articles for the students to evaluate and hopefully they then have made these connections to learn something. There is part of me that is a little bit concerned about that because what about the students who struggle to make those connections? You know, what about the students who, who struggle with that, um, those inference skills that they might need? Are they going to have learned as much as if I had stood up at the board and um, overtly taught these things to them? But then, what's to say that they would have learned these things if I had stood up at the board and overtly taught things to them? That is perhaps giving myself a bit too much credit to say that I could do better than they could. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and that's kind of the, the joy of my show today. I'm Even though I said at the top, I don't think that Socrates would have agreed with what we're doing as Socratic questioning. I'm not going to come to a conclusion about the whether Socratic questioning is the way to go, because my honest answer is, I don't know. Um, all I can do is have these conversations, read these things, use these techniques when I think they're applicable to my classroom. And then if somebody else can come along and say, oh, this is my case study and it worked really, really well, or this is my case study and it didn't work at all, I can take that and use that to inform my practice. Um, and I'm not ashamed of that because I think often when as teachers, we turn around and say, this is the way I teach and I'm not changing it. That's when we stop being effective because that then is when we stop learning about what is best for our students. So what are the benefits to Socratic questioning? Why should we use it? Um, Woodruff, in an article that I have tweeted out already this morning, um, Woodruff affirms that nothing is more important to uh, education, to this kind of education, than the resources that learners bring to it. And that is something with which I, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, I trained as a social constructivist, so I trained believing that Students don't come into our lessons with empty heads that we fill. They come into our lessons with preconceived ideas 
of our subject based on things they've seen on TV, things they've read in magazines, things they've spoken to their friends about. And it's our job as the teacher to either affirm those correct presumptions or correct the misconceptions. Um, and that, you know, that's still what I believe. That's still how I base my whole practice. So I, I completely do that. And, and this, I suppose, is kind of similar to the flip learning model that was popular a few years ago. Uh, I'm sure lots of you remember that when we had to or when we were expected to um, set as our students homework, a video to watch or an article to read, and they then would come back the next day and do the activities around it. Of course, the presupposition there was always that the students would do the homework and the ones who didn't really struggled because they kind of missed the teaching. You know, there, there would be a lesson and, and this is just hypothetical, but from my own subject, let's say again that I was teaching present tense in French. So the homework was watch this YouTube video about how to form the present tense in French. The kids would then come back in and the first thing that they would do I would greet them, do the register, blah, blah, blah. And then they would have a worksheet on the present tense in French. Those who had watched the video and understood the material got through absolutely fine. Those who had watched the video but didn't understand it, they would be okay with me helping them. But those who didn't watch the video would be lost right from the beginning. And you know, very easy for us to turn around and say, oh, well, you should have done the homework, but who knows what reason they had for not doing the homework. You know, our kids have got very complicated lives. And while there are lots of them who just won't have done the task, there are lots of them who will come to class not having done it with a legitimate reason. What do they then do? You know, do we then provide them with the opportunity to access those resources so that they don't fall behind? However, and I find it quite interesting. I was just reflecting on the fact that I went straight to the negative um, when, in fact, in my notes, the positive comes first. Um, this does allow for greater autonomy and it does allow for greater responsibility in their learning. And, and again, that's a critique that I hear a lot, that I see a lot on social media, is that our students don't always take responsibility for their lessons. They don't take responsibility for their progress. And we can't give them much more responsibility than go away, go away and learn this. And then when you come into my lesson, I will help you go through it in practice. Uh, Shannon Robinson in an article that I've just tweeted. So again, if anything that I've said today um, piques your interest, please do go and check out my Twitter at Mr. D Lester, where I have tweeted links to all of these articles I've referenced. Uh, Shannon Robertson points out, because the questions, uh, sorry, because the teacher's questions prompt students' observations of the complexity of knowledge, they recognize that the teacher is modeling good questioning techniques and that their responses to those questions help them articulate problems and consider different solutions. So, if we are Socratic questioners, we are showing our students the value of questioning and the value of good questioning. Um, another one of the subjects that I teach to A-level is English language. And a big part of the English language A-level um, at the moment is getting students to critically analyse media. And that is such an important skill, particularly for our students right now 
who have media all around them. You know, everything that they consume is media. Everything is content, um, to use that meme. And so we need our students to be able to critically analyze what they are reading, what they are hearing, what they are seeing. A bit like I said to to all of you at the, the top of the show, go away and read these articles for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. And the Socratic question can help them to do that. And it can show them the importance of doing that. It can show them the importance of asking the right questions. Because if your your, um, understanding of value is how many followers somebody has on TikTok, and you're going to go, oh, well, this person's got two million followers, so what they say must be true. Is that the same as this person's got a PhD in their subject, so what they're saying must be true? From my point of view, no. I would trust the PhD more than I would trust two million followers as as uh, a criterion but that's because of how i've been trained that's because of the education that i've been through that's because of the advantage that i have over my students by being 20 blah 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 years older than them and so i we have to train our students to do this to ask the right questions that just asking questions alone isn't enough but those questions need to be good quality questions they need to be the correct questions to get the answers that we need um shannon robertson also points out that students embrace these solutions because they feel that the ideas are theirs from conception to conclusion and You know, again, we talk about our students taking responsibility for their learning, but how edifying is it for them? Think back on your own school days. How rewarding was it when you believed you had come to your own conclusion, when you believed that you had figured something out for yourself? Again, in in French, um, one thing that I used to do when I taught reflexive verbs with year nine, so I, I... wash myself in french we say i shave myself uh was i would give them a big list of of reflexive um reflexive sentences and i would ask them to spot patterns and i wouldn't give them any clues i would give them no context i might tell them oh you know these are all daily routine phrases but that's all i would give them i would say are, are there any patterns? I wouldn't even necessarily tell them that there were patterns. I would just ask the question, are there any patterns? And one of the students, at least one of the students, would spot the reflexive pronoun, the myself, in those sentences. And that student was always so happy that they had done that, so happy that they had seen that. And I then said, OK, so that word means myself. What do we think is going on here? And then somebody else would say, oh, so all of these verbs, all of these doing words need the myself with it. And they would have pieced that together. It's a bit of a guess, but I, as the teacher, can then turn around and go, yes, that's correct. And that is taking responsibility for their learning. That is having them really engage with the material. And I think if as teachers we are spoon feeding, if as teachers we feel that we need to always be the ones giving them the information instead of having them figure out the information for themselves, we can take away that experience. We can take away that motivation almost. We can also then put them into bad habits because if we as the teachers are doing all the thinking for them, that's what they will expect. 
And so they then know that they can come and not have to engage in the class because I will give them the answers. Again, that's something that I think we all do, particularly um, early on in our careers. So if you're an ECT listening in because you're interested in, um, in Socratic questioning and you want to, to know more about it, don't worry if you feel like you are spoon feeding too much because we all do it. We all do it. We have all done it. And I think finding that balance between giving our students information and having them figure it out for themselves is one that comes not only with classroom experience, but also just with making mistakes still when you are 15, 20, 25 years in, because sometimes we do just do it. So what are the drawbacks then? We've, I've talked, I've given some positives. We're going to look at some negatives. Um, and again, is it Hickman in, in their article points out very interestingly that the Socratic method can leave people feeling that they lack a concrete understanding of concepts because the right or wrong answers have not been drilled into them. And that's something I know that children don't like. They don't like when there isn't a very clear right or wrong. Um, as a humanities person, as a linguist, I try and get them out of that mindset. But I understand where it's coming from. You know, children like to be right, particularly in education where they we are constantly asking them to come out of their comfort zones and learn new things, things that they might not be interested in, things that they might not want to do, but we're still expecting of them all of the time. And even this one little comfort that they might take, is this right or wrong? Have I got this right? If we're then turning around and saying, oh, well, actually, I'm sorry, there isn't a right answer. That's not going to be as morale boosting for all students as it could be. I personally like when there is not a right answer, which is why I'm a linguist. It's why I'm in the humanities. Um, I like the vagaries, but not all students do. And so some students may feel uncomfortable if you've not given them, yes, this is right, but you've just asked them another question. Particularly because students always think that if you ask them another question, they got it wrong. Because they are kind of trained to see our questioning as looking for a right answer. Because again, I've had it. I've asked a question, student has replied completely correctly. I've then asked a question that was on the same topic, but it was a different question. And then the student said, oh, so I got that wrong then. Because they were looking for that, yes, that's right feedback, and then the discussion about it. Or maybe for me to do a quick summary of what they said. They don't like that moving from question to question to question without a positive yes or no in between. This, of course, can be problematic for us if we have students who have very strong opinions on what is correct teaching. And if we then have students going away and saying, oh, well, Miss so-and-so didn't give me the right answer and so she didn't teach me properly, that can then start to raise flags among students, among senior leadership, and for poor Miss So-and-so, who is having her teaching critiqued, who is having her teaching questioned, because the student didn't feel like they were being taught, in inverted commas, properly. I think it would take a very brave teacher to put their teaching under such scrutiny, to, to persist 
with just a Socratic, with a pure Socratic method of lots and lots of repetitive questioning, when students were turning around and saying, why are you not telling me the answer? And if a student didn't like being told, oh, well, the, the point of this is to develop your analytical skills. I'm not sure, honestly, if I would stick to my guns under such scrutiny, um, particularly not with this technique where I'm not 100% sold. There are teaching techniques on which I am completely sold um, and I will justify um, but with this one, I'm not so sure. And so I think, yeah, I think it would take a brave person and a very supportive senior leadership to turn around to a parent who was saying, oh, my child is is not being taught properly because the teacher's not saying things. The teacher is just asking questions. The teacher is not giving information, uh, you know, to turn around to that parent to go, actually, this is a perfectly valid, perfectly legitimate technique. Um, interestingly, in an article for Psychology Today, Mitchell Handelsman, PhD, cited the opinion of a law school student whose law training had been in the Socratic method. Um, and this student reported feeling manipulated. They said, it's like you're just a puppet whose strings are being pulled until you say what the professor wants to hear. Now, we're constantly told in our CPD about questioning that it's wrong to expect a student to read our minds. We shouldn't necessarily be asking questions with only one right answer in mind. We shouldn't ask open questions with one right answer in mind. But it might be that students feel that way because students are used to being asked questions which require a correct answer. So it is kind of about retraining their mindset and getting them used to this analysis, getting them used to the, the fact that it's not necessarily the information that we want, but how you are conveying it, how you are making these links. And perhaps this is why Socratic questioning is more common in subjects like philosophy, RS, like I, I Talked, at the top, talked about at the top of the show, where right and wrong are not necessarily as important as justification and consideration. Um, I was marking an A-level English essay for a student yesterday, and it kind of, probably because I've been thinking about this while prepping for the show, but it occurred to me that the mark scheme actually gives equal weighting to how the student has written the essay and justified their responses as it does to using the correct linguistic terminology. So, you know, this is something that our students are increasingly being trained in, are increasingly being required to do, and we need to make sure that they are doing it. Um, Handelman concludes in, in his article, these comments show that the Socratic method runs the risk of being, or of being perceived as, disrespectful, ineffective, and evidence of professor incompetence, malice, or laziness. Because students are very quick to talk about our practice. Students are very quick to say if they think a teacher is being lazy. And perhaps it is an interpretation of a teacher not standing at the front of the classroom and lecturing or not standing at the front of the classroom with a PowerPoint, but of just asking lots of questions. Maybe there is that perception of the teacher is being lazy. But 
on the flip side of that, in our classrooms, the students are the ones who should be doing the work because they're the ones having to learn. We learned this stuff already. I, I quite often say to my students, I can't learn French for you because I've learned it for me. And so they do need to be doing the work to be engaging. But it is interesting that they will look at us as teachers and they will give a perception. And it is interesting that these people have been through, like I said, a pure Socratic where the only um, thing that the teachers did was to give out case studies and ask questions, that that was a sign of laziness. Whether or not you feel that you would need to justify yourself is entirely up to you. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have an opinion on whether teachers should be justifying their practice and whether teachers should, should feel that they need to justify their practice to students. I personally like to, um, not to justify, I suppose, but just because I think it's respectful for me to explain to my students why the way that I'm teaching them is effective, in my opinion. Um, but again, that's that's just me. That's just what I like to do. Um, some students can find Socratic questioning stressful in the same way that some students can find cold calling stressful. Um, in a 2021 article for Edutopia, Rand Miller discussed their time as a law student um, under a professor who used the Socratic, the Socratic method to develop critical thinking. And Rand describes their feeling as a student that um, uh, all it did was scare the hell out of me is a direct quote from, from that article. And when Ran then decided to try and use that method in their own classroom, it did the same for their teaching. They say, um, the students were spooked. Some kids were visibly anxious and the stress for some became too much. We paused and I told my students to take a breath. And this loops back to what I was saying at the beginning, what I mentioned at the beginning about whether it's right to expect participation in the form of questioning or responding to questions from all of our students. Um, that is a criterion against which we as teachers are often judged. Have you had participation? Or is it just the same student answering all of the time? I've had observations where I was asked at the end, why did you not ask so-and-so a question um, because it didn't look like they were engaging? And my response to that was, because this student doesn't like having questions they don't like speaking in public and i don't want to put that pressure on them but if your lesson is all about the questioning then there will be that pressure at some point to engage because otherwise your student isn't doing anything and again we know that they don't like to be bored so if if your student's choice is answer a question but that makes me profoundly uncomfortable because i have anxiety about speaking in front of other people or do nothing and be bored, they will probably still answer or will still attempt to answer, but they're not going to feel good about it. So again, as with all questioning techniques, if you are going to run a Socratic section in your lesson, or if you're going to run an entirely Socratic lesson, it's a good idea to think about how you're going to um, tackle these students who don't like to answer out loud. Um, my favourite thing, just so as you know, is a pad of post-it notes um, because I'm very lucky and I actually have a surplus of post-it notes in my classroom um, or a mini whiteboard. And I have them 
answer the question there so that they then don't need to answer in public. Um, I like the post-its because they then can be stuck into the book. So I've then got evidence of participation. Um, I suppose you could always photocopy a whiteboard. I have done that before. Or if you've got a one-to-one um, device policy in your school, you can have your students uh, take notes on their device. Uh, this is, of course, assuming that you're not requiring them to work in their exercise book, I suppose. As with all questioning methods, then, there is this risk of disproportionate calling. Um, and of course, that risk is going to be mathematically higher when your whole lesson is based around questioning. Uh, Ram Miller reminds us to keep uh, a tracker of students who have answered so that you can figure out where the patterns are, so that you can see whether the kids who are not answering are the ones who have some kind of anxiety or if they are just trying to get out of doing anything, in which case you can target them. Um, Miller suggests even keeping track of whether their answers were right or wrong which kind of goes against what we've been talking about so far today about keeping it to do with analytical skills and not expecting them to read your mind. But, but that's that's something you could do. Uh, I personally would suggest colour coding your marks if you were going to do that as an indicator to how deep the thought was or how well the thought was analysed rather, rather than whether it was right or wrong. Um, but that's just because I will take any excuse to get out my Sharpies, quite frankly. Oh, right. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for your attention, for listening to me today. Um, I hope that it was interesting for you. I hope that you have taken something away from it. I have come to the conclusion, and I've said this all the way through, that no, Socrates would not necessarily have approved of what we call Socratic questioning because it is not to find out what other people know, what knowledge other people have, but we are using it to find out whether our kids are producing right answers or not. And I, I don't think that that was what Socrates was going for. I think he was going for expanding his own knowledge. However, that doesn't mean that Socratic questioning itself is wrong. Um, it just means that we are keeping the memory alive of this man with something that he might not necessarily have approved of, but... I'm not going to make the mistake of pretending that I can tell you because I've just been talking about this fictionalised version of Socrates, who is the version that I've put together from my studying. Um, and, you know, having critiqued Aristophanes and Plato at the top for doing that, um, I'm not going to be a hypocrite and do it myself. I hope you all have a great weekend. We do not have any other shows today with Teach Talk Radio. Um, Although if you are a teacher and you are interested in being involved in hosting a show of your own, please do get in touch uh, with us. The leaders at Teacher Talk Radio are keen to hear from all sorts of people who might be interested in running the show. So if you are interested, please uh, tweet at Teacher Talk Radio in the first instance, and they will get in touch with you on how to do that. Thank you so much for listening. Have yourselves a great weekend, a great week, and I will look forward to being with you next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.